When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to the second episode of the new season of the Forza Napoli Cultural Podcast. This is a podcast of what it's Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan, looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you so much for joining us. We really do appreciate it. On today's episode, we're going to spend quite a bit of time on Napoli and Serie A news, so we're going to skip the European news portion, so hopefully everyone is already up to speed on the Nations League. In part 2, we'll recap Napoli's friendly match against Teramo and the Napoli Feminile match against Sassuolo. And in part 3, we'll do a player profile on the most recent player to depart from Napoli, which is Alan, who is now officially an Everton player. So let's get right into the news, starting with Napoli. The training retreat at Castel di Sangro ended last week and the club has now resumed training at Castel Volturno. About a thousand fans were allowed to watch the 10th day of training at Castel di Sangro. Among those in attendance was the Minister of Environment, Sergio Costa. Apparently Gattuso jokingly told him to tell Spadafora to reopen the stadiums. Speaking of fans, Napoli's Councillor of Sport, Ciro Boriello, spoke to Radio Kiss Kiss about the possibility of partially reopening the San Paolo for Napoli's friendly against Pescara on the 11th. Boriello said unlike the championship, the club is responsible for organizing friendly matches. He said the municipality would not have a problem with partially reopening the San Paolo for the friendly, so long as there were COVID protocol in place that respect the measures established by the World Health Organization. Aurelio De Laurentiis had a lot to say at the final press conference at Castel di Sangro. He commented on the UEFA Nations League still being played across Europe despite the pandemic. De Laurentiis has been quite vocal in condemning these matches, and I think he's right. Once again, this is all about money, and I get that many smaller nations and their football associations benefit from the funds generated by these matches, but we are still in the midst of a global pandemic. De Laurentiis said he hopes players come back and don't test positive, otherwise there will be trouble for UEFA and he will proceed with legal action. A player who could be at risk of testing positive for COVID-19 is Dries Mertens. On Sunday, we learned that his Belgian teammate Brandon Michel tested positive. Michel was an unused substitute in Belgium's 2-0 win over Denmark on Saturday. However, the club did play again on Tuesday, so hopefully that means that no one else tested positive. De Laurentiis added that he is projecting a loss of 250 to 300 million euros as a result of COVID-19. He also made an interesting comment on the Primavera, which could explain the lack of investment in Napoli's academy. He said as soon as these players succeed, the players and their families immediately go north because Italy is a country of delinquency. He'd much rather purchase a player for 30 million euros from Verona. Finally, De Laurentiis addressed the comments he made about Radio Kiss Kiss. 
Surprisingly, that story didn't get a whole lot of attention on social media, but basically De Laurentiis told the radio station live on air that this will be his final interview with them because they refused to broadcast anything internationally. Kiss Kiss immediately responded with an editorial note on their official website condemning the comments made by De Laurentiis, calling them vulgar insinuations that reveal a clear disrespect for the entire category of journalists. It called the statements harmful to the editorial staff and journalists of the station, and said the statements were an unjustified and inelegant personal attack. So De Laurentiis was asked about this at the press conference. He said he wasn't angry with the journalists, but rather with the two publishers who do not broadcast internationally. He gave the example of Victor Osman, who is spoken about around the world, so they have to reach beyond just those who listen in Napoli, otherwise their paths will divide here. That incited another official response, this time from the president of Radio Kiskis, Lucia Niespolo. The statement makes reference to the contract between the club and the radio station and how the station does reach the international audience via the web and its streaming services. The very fact that the station issued these two very legal statements suggests to me that they're preparing for either a defamation lawsuit, a breach of contract lawsuit, or possibly both should the Laurentis end relations with them. De Laurentiis also feuded this week with politician Stefano Caldoro, who is running for president of the region of Campania against the current president, Vincenzo De Luca. In an interview with Corriere del Mezzogiorno, Caldoro accused De Laurentiis of supporting De Luca, who he called a Juventus player and a communist, and suggested that De Laurentiis should focus on buying players. Naturally, De Laurentiis took to Twitter to respond, saying, Dear Caldoro, it is with a certain tenderness that I read your recent statements, where you asked me not to help the Juventus and communist De Luca, of whom I have been a friend since 1994. Your swerves make no sense for a candidate who has already lost the electoral battle. Furthermore, when you were president of Campania, you did very little. You tell me I have to buy players. You certainly don't know that we bought Osimhen for 70 million plus 10 million bonus, not to mention the players who arrived in January, but you are too busy not being dubbed by De Luca. Dear Caldoro, good luck. Back to training, as I mentioned, Napoli returned to training at Castel Vorturno on Monday to prepare for their next friendly match, which is against Pescara on Friday. Kevin Malqui picked up a knock on Monday, so he worked only in the gym on Tuesday. Andrea Petania was excited to finally join his new teammates on Tuesday after he was self-quarantined to recover from COVID. He posted on Instagram saying, I've been waiting for this moment for a long time. I couldn't be more proud, focused, and determined for this new adventure, Forza Napoli. I must say, at least from the pictures that I've seen, that Patania looks like he showed up in great shape. Okay, next let's do a quick update on the Mercato. On Tuesday, Arsenal officially announced through its social media channels the purchase of Gabriel from Lille. Then on Saturday, Everton officially announced the purchase of Alain from Napoli. We're going to talk more about Alain's career in Part 3, but I'll give you my thoughts on the purchase here. I've seen a lot about the purchase price and how Napoli should have sold them when they had the chance. We saw De Laurentiis basically say that after not selling Alain and Koulibaly, going forward essentially no player is unsellable if the right offer comes in, which caused some of us to scratch our heads. However, De Laurentiis is pretty spontaneous in the media. This is the same person that said he shouldn't have fired Ancelotti when Gattuso got off to a rough start and now he's talking about extending his contract. At the time that PSG made that offer, Alain was absolutely world-class and De Laurentiis was right to decline the offer. You can debate whether Koulibaly should have been sold for 110 million euros, but we're seeing a similar situation play out now with Koulibaly. Not too many people thought Napoli should accept Manchester City's low-ball offer of 60 million euros for him, even though it's possible his value declined significantly over the next year and a half. Of course, in hindsight, it looks like we should have sold Alain, and I'm sure if De Laurentiis knew Alain's play would decline like it has, then of course he would have sold him. The last thing I'll say about this is that for Napoli, this is still the right decision. Alain had played himself onto the bench with the help of Dem and Lobotka, who have played very well. So while this offer may be lower than the previous offers, that 28 million euros is still a hefty chunk of change for a bench player and given the current economic environment. Napoli paid 10 million euros for Alain, which has been fully amortized, meaning the entire 28 million euros is recorded in our books as a gain. Those funds can now be used to acquire players to address weaknesses in other positions. On Tuesday, in an interview with Canale, De Laurentiis said Koulibaly and Milik are both leaving market permitting. He added that if the market allows for their exits, 
then the club knows how these two excellent players will be replaced. Otherwise, we will talk about them next season. That makes sense for Koulibaly, but not for Milik, as he's free to leave at the end of next season. On Koulibaly, De Laurentiis added that City claims that they can't speak directly to Napoli because of what happened with Jorginho. Both Di Marzio and Fabrizio Romano are reporting that talks are progressing, but slowly because there are no direct conversations happening between the clubs. It appears that Koulibaly's agent, Fali Ramadani, is acting as the intermediary. The latest player rumored to fill the vacant centre-back position, according to Dutch paper Het Newsblad, is Lyon's Jason Denier. His agent, Jesse De Praters, spoke to Radio Punto Nuovo, where De Praters explained that he actually contacted Napoli before Denier signed with Lyon and since then has had an excellent relationship with Napoli's management. He added that Denier would be thrilled to play for Napoli and the decision is with the club. Leon is not in European competition this year, and he would like to play at a European level again this year. Meanwhile, Napoli and Roma appear to be inching closer to a swap of Arkadiusz Milik for Cengiz Under. According to Il Matino, this deal will be closed this week. They claim the final obstacle was Under's salary, because the player wanted 4 million euros a season, but the parties have agreed to 3 million. This report makes very little sense. First of all, Roma likely won't pull the trigger on Milik until they sell Dzeko, and at the time of this recording, Dzeko is still a Roma player. Second, it's in Roma's best interest to drag this negotiation out to an extent, because the longer it takes, the lower Milik's value will be. Don't be surprised if by the end of this, Milik generates far less than the 40 million euros that De Laurentiis wants. Napoli purchased Milik for 35 million euros in 2016 and signed them to a 5-year contract. On 5-year contracts, Napoli typically amortize 40% in the first year, 30 in the second, 20 in the third, 7 in the fourth, and 3% in the final year. In other words, of the original transfer fee, only about a million euros remains on the books. The rest is amortized, i.e. paid off. So whatever we get for Milik, less a million euros, will be recognized as a gain. What's interesting about this transaction is that despite the Laurentiis initially insisting on cash, Napoli could potentially profit more on a swap, and I'll explain why. Player swaps are not the same as trades in North American sports. A player swap in football is really two transactions, a sale of one player and a purchase of another. Now, that's where things get a little bit shady. Suppose Napoli and Roma agree that Milik is worth 10 million euros more than Under. It might be that Milik's true value is 30 million and Under's is 20, but each side benefits from inflating the value of their respective players. If Napoli sell Milik for 30 million, we record a profit today of 29 million. But if we sell Milik for 40 million, we record a profit of 39 million. Now, you might say, what's the difference? We still have to pay out more for the player we're buying, so it cancels out. While it's true we would pay more for Under, say 30 million instead of 20, that fee would be amortized and spread over the term of the contract. So at the end of the day, the gain would be the same over the term of the player's contract, but especially for clubs that are in financial duress. This enables them to record a higher gain earlier on. Like I said, it's shady practice, but it's actually not so uncommon. If you're wondering why Artur and Pjanic had the valuations they did in that swap, this probably has something to do with it. According to Gazzetta dello Sport, Fiorentina are also interested in Milik, and they're suggesting a swap for Castrovilli, but it would cost Napoli more than just Milik. Personally, I don't think Fiorentina are willing to part ways with Castrovilli, and if they were, the price would be far too expensive. Ironically, Gazzetta are also reporting that Fiorentina have flat out denied Napoli's inquiries for Castrovilli, Pezzella, and Chiesa. We'll end the transfer segment with a few quick updates. The papers continue to report that Napoli are trying to buy Jordan Vertu. La Repubblica claimed that he would cost 35 to 40 million euros and that Napoli don't want to pay entirely in cash. They also claim that Napoli don't want to pay 3 million euros a year in salary. But then, of course, they close the article by saying that Roma will do everything they can to resist Napoli. If a club was so adamant about not selling a player, then why would he be for sale in the first place? The answer is, he's not for sale. I'll be happy to own up to it if I'm wrong on this, but expect Vertu to play for Roma next season. On Jeremy Boga, Sassuolo's CEO Giovanni Carnavali told the media that there are many requests for Boga, and they receive something new every day. He added that there is no Inter, but there is an important relationship with Napoli and De Laurentiis, so we'll keep an eye on that one. We mentioned last week that Genoa Sporting Director Daniele Fagiano was in Napoli recently to meet with Giuntoli. The latest rumor is that a loan of Amin Yunus to Genoa could be completed as soon as this week. 
Yunus has reportedly accepted the move, which would finally allow him to get consistent playing time that he was never given at Napoli. Finally, Juntili seems to have put to bed any speculation that Meret will be sold. He said, Meret is happy to stay with us. We haven't received any offers, and we all agreed to make him a champion, and he can do it in Naples. He added that the only truth the media are reporting is that Meret is worth 50 million euros. Moving on to Serie A, the president of the Italian National Olympic Committee, Giovanni Malago, was asked if it would be possible to allow only season ticket holders to attend matches. He said that could be a solution as it could have the right balance of spectators given the capacity of stadiums, but it all depends on the technical and scientific committee. On Monday, Under Secretary of Health Sandra Zampa gave an interview to Radio Punto Novo where she discussed the possibility of reopening stadiums. She said the return to school for children is the top priority at the moment, and depending on how that goes, then a decision can be made on stadiums. She reiterated the challenges of managing sporting events, which includes the inevitable gatherings that will occur, and public transportation, both of which create risk. She said only if everything goes well, then we could see fans at the Milan Derby on October 17th. In other news, the Serie A calendar was published last week. Before I get into the matches, Calcio e Finanza published an excellent article on how the schedule is constructed, so I wanted to quickly go over that first. First, there cannot be more than two pairs of consecutive home and or away matches per group. In other words, the matches must alternate between home and away, but twice in the group, which I assume means in each half of the season, a team can have either two home matches in a row or two away matches in a row. In the event that there are two pairs of consecutive matches at home and or away, one match couple must necessarily be at home and the other away. For clubs that play in the same city, i.e. Genoa and Sampdoria, Inter and Milan, Juventus and Torino, and Lazio and Roma, all matches must alternate between home and away. The only exception is for Lazio and Roma as the Stadio Olimpico will not be available for the final match of the year as it will host the opening match of Euro 2020 or 2021. So Lazio and Roma will both play their final matches away, which means they will both play their final matches of the first round at home. With respect to the individual matchups, the city derbies of Genoa, Milano, Roma, and Torino are not played on the first or last days of the season, nor are they played midweek. No matches are repeated from the previous season. By repeated, they mean the same two teams playing on the same match day as the previous campaign. Similarly, clubs that have played each other on the first or last day of either of the previous two seasons will not play each other on the first or last day of this season. And finally, clubs participating in the Champions League, Atalanta, Inter, Juventus, and Lazio, will not play clubs participating in the Europa League, Napoli, Milan, and Roma, on the days between a Europa League round and a Champions League round. So that's how the schedule is constructed. Next, let's look at the schedule itself, starting with Napoli. We open the season away at Parma on September 20th, followed by Genoa at home. Then we have the first of three tough back-to-back matches in the round, playing Juventus in match day three, followed immediately by Atalanta in match day four. On match day five, we have a derby against the newly promoted Benevento, followed by Sassuolo and Bologna. Then we have our second tough back-to-back, playing Milan and Roma, both of which are at the San Paolo. Crotone and Sampdoria are next, ahead of the third tough back-to-back in Inter and Lazio. Both of those matches are away, which is a good thing in my opinion because it means the reverse fixtures, which are match days 31 and 32, will be played at home. The balance of the round is not terribly difficult. We play Torino, Cagliari, Spezia, Udinese, Fiorentina, and Verona. The second half of the season is the same as the first, except the home and away teams are reversed. So that's Napoli's schedule. I'll quickly go over a few match days to look out for, and then we'll end the segment with the Coppa Italia draw. On match day 3, we play Juventus and Inter play Lazio. On match day 4, we play Atalanta and we have the Derby della Madonnina. On match day 6, the Derby della Lanterna. On match day 7, we have Atalanta Inter and Juve Lazio. Match day 9 is the Derby del Sole. Match day 10 is the Derby della Mole. On match day 12, we play Inter and Juve play Atalanta. On match day 13, we play Lazio and Roma play Atalanta. Juve play Milan on match day 16, followed by Roma Inter on match day 17, and on match day 18, Inter play Juve, and it's the Derby della Capitale. So that's the Serie A calendar. On Tuesday, the Coppa Italia bracket was released. For those who don't know, the Coppa Italia consists of 8 rounds. 
The first is played by Seti Chi and D clubs. Seti B clubs join in the second round. Then the bottom 12 Seti A teams from last season join in the third round, which is the round of 32. The top 8 Seti A teams join in the round of 16, but none of them can play each other until the quarterfinals. Other than the semifinals, every other tie is a single elimination match, and the final will be played on May 19th. For Napoli, there's a good possibility they play Benevento in the round of 16, and if they win that match, they could play against Roma in the quarterfinals. So that will do it for the news. In part 2, we'll cover Napoli's friendly against Teramo and the Napoli Femminile match against Sassuolo. In part 2, we're going to cover two matches. First, we'll cover Napoli's friendly against Teramo, and then we'll cover the women's team who played their third match of the Serie A campaign on Saturday against Sassuolo. So starting with the men, Napoli played their second friendly on Friday against Teramo. Teramo finished in 8th place in Serie C Group C, which was enough to qualify for the promotion playoff last season. They were eliminated by Catanzaro after a 0-0 draw because Catanzaro finished higher in the table by one point. Teramo lined up in a 4-2-3-1 with Mattia Valentini in goal. Andrea Cristini and Matteo Piacintini started at centre-back. Salim Diakite started at right-back and Alberto Tentardini started at left-back. In front of the back line were Andrea Arrigoni and Federico Viero. Domenico Mungo started at right-wing and Francesco Bombaggi at left-wing. In the middle, Carlo Ilari played as the trequartista behind Pietro Cianci. Gattuso once again lined up his men in the 4-2-3-1 formation with a number of changes given that 13 Napoli players were on international duty in the UEFA Nations League. David Ospina started in goal, Kalidou Koulibaly started in the middle alongside Sebastiano Luperto, Koulibaly wore the captain's armband with Insigne not in the squad, Kevin Malqui started at right back and Fauzi Goulam started at left back, Diego Deme played alongside Gianluca Gaetano in the midfield, Chucky Lozano played left wing and Matteo Politano played right wing. Amin Yunus played in the Trequartista behind Victor Osimhen. The fact that Napoli had so much quality in this squad despite having so many players away shows just how deep this squad is, though it's quite possible that Koulibaly, Gulam, and Yunus are no longer part of the squad by the end of the transfer window. So with that, here are the highlights. Arriva il pallone al centro dell'area, il colpo di testa Osimhen! Mette subito la zampata vincente Osimen, ancora lui e sono quattro i gol in queste amichevoli estive per Osimen esattamente come contro l'Aquila, pronti via poco più e subito il graffio di Victor Osimen sugli sviluppi del calcio d'angolo e sulla sponda di Lozano. Palla dentro per Politano che taglia bene centralmente, sta arrivando Lozano che segna un gol straordinario. Lozano 2-0. In situazioni come questa per il Teramo, intanto Osimen, Osimen sull'errore della difesa teramana, non sbaglia Osimen. Percentuale di realizzazione altissima per Victor Osimen. Gol del 3-0, doppietta personale per lui. Un pochino l'anno scorso ha avuto un po' di problemi fisici, noie muscolari soprattutto. Qui Politano ancora, Politano in area di rigore. Politano, Osimen, controllo, Osimen. 4-0 Napoli. E tripletta per Osimen. As you heard, Napoli won this match 4-0. Let's start with a quick recap of the goals for anyone who was not able to watch the match, and then we'll do our player assessments. It didn't take long for Napoli to find the back of the goal. None other than Victor Osimhen opened the scoring in the third minute from a corner kick. Lozano did well to win the header over Tentardini, which he played back into the danger area, and Osimhen tapped in from close range. Lozano doubled Napoli's lead in the 13th minute. The play started with a really nice long through ball from Amin Yunus, 
to pick out Politano's run into the box. Politano did well to lay it off for Lozano, and his finish was absolutely perfect, picking the top corner. Osman scored his second in the 61st minute. Piacentini didn't put enough weight on his pass for Soprano. Osman immediately charged him down and actually got a foot on the Soprano's pass, which ended up going straight to Yunus. Yunus played the ball through to Osman, and he finished past Mikhail Lewandowski, who had replaced Valentini just moments prior to the goal. Then only a minute later, Osman nearly completed the tripleta on a very similar play. Once again, Teramo conceded possession cheaply. Once again, Yunus picked out Osman's run, but the striker's shot hit the outside of the post. Osman did get his third about 5 minutes later. Politano did well to chase down the ball between two very indecisive Teramo defenders. The ball fell for Osman and he smashed it into the back of the goal to complete his tripleta. So those were the goals. Let's do some quick player assessments next. And again, I'll stress that this was a Serici opponent. David Ospina made the odd save when he needed to, but otherwise he was not terribly busy. What I found most interesting was that Ospina was replaced by Nikita Contini in the 66th minute. Contini has now appeared in both friendlies. He replaced Alex Meret about midway through the match against Castel di Sangro. I'm starting to think perhaps Contini will be the replacement for Carnetsis as the third keeper. Other than the odd Meret rumor, I really haven't seen anything about possible keeper transfers, especially about keepers coming into the club. At centre-back, I thought Koulibaly's performance left a lot to be desired. Early in the match, he conceded possession as a last man back, which allowed Chanchi an excellent scoring opportunity, but Ospina saved comfortably. Then in the second half, he played a wayward pass that was intended for Gulam, but it went straight out to touch. I thought both fullbacks were very good. I think Gulam's time at the club has probably come to an end, but he is showing signs that he could be a very good player, perhaps for a smaller club. He's 29 now, so I don't think he'll get back to the form that he was at before tearing his ACL in 2017. That's the same injury Kevin Malqui suffered back in October, which caused him to miss most of last season. Malqui played two matches before the injury, and he really impressed in those two matches. I don't know if that would have been enough to steal Di Lorenzo's starting position, and as we know, Di Lorenzo ended up having a very good year. But Malqui has had a strong preseason, so I think we're set for the right-back position with Di Lorenzo as the starter and Malqui as the backup. Gaetano played in the midfield with Zielinski, Fabian, and Elmas all on international duty and with Alan, at least at the time, on the verge of a transfer to Everton. It sounds like Gaetano will head back to Cremonese for another year on loan, but the club would like to extend his contract for another year or two before he goes. He is currently under contract until 2023. I thought both wingers put in strong performances. Politano hit the post in the 71st minute. Lozano assisted the first goal and scored the second. I think we're finally starting to see the player that Napoli paid 40 million euros for, and it's no surprise that he is now having success playing on the wing. I've always been an Ancelotti fan, but he didn't help Lozano by using him out of position in the 4-4-2. Then after that, Lozano had to earn the trust of Gattuso. The other day, the Everything Napoli Twitter account tweeted a story from Il Matino that claimed Gattuso was shocked to find out that after six months, Lozano still hadn't understood Italian. Gattuso immediately ordered lessons. I don't know if that story is true or not. With all due respect to El Matino, they're not always the most reliable. Most Mexicans speak Spanish, which is a very similar language to Italian, so I find it hard to believe that Lozano didn't understand Italian. In any event, we're seeing that Lozano can be effective when used in his natural position. Gattuso commented on that after the match. He said he's a strong player if you go and touch his strings and put him in a position to express himself to the maximum. I know what I want from my strikers. Now I see that he is finally in Napoli. Maybe at first he thought he was still in Eindhoven in Mexico, but now I see that he is reacting, that he is working hard. This year he will be able to give us a great hand. So the question becomes, who are the starting wingers, especially if we were able to sign Jeremy Boga? You know Insigne will play on the left wing. If it were up to me, I'd start Lozano on the right wing, though he appears to be flexible enough to play on both sides. I really like Jeremy Boga, but I'm starting to wonder if it actually makes sense to sign him. We spent about 65 million euros on Lozano and Politano on the right wing, so we need to get at least another season out of each of them before we can sell them. Boga has had success playing on the left wing because he can cut in onto his right foot, but Insignia owns that position. Insignia is 29 and is expected to extend, so if we signed Boga, he'd either be a bench player, which I can't imagine he'd go for, or we'd have to bench 65 million euros in Politano and Lozano, which further hurts their value. 
The only thing that makes sense to me right now is a purchase with a loan back to Sassuolo for a year. That would give us the time to see how Politano and Lozano play for a full season under Gattuso. Then we could sell one of them to free up the position. Also, Insigne will be 30 by then, so we can start to transition him into more of a backup role, like I think we'll start to see with Dries Mertens. Up top, Amin Yunus was the man of the match for me. He was involved in three of the four goals. He won the corner and took the corner on the first goal. He played the long through ball to Lozano on the second goal, and he played the through ball on the third goal. We mentioned in part one that he could be heading to Genoa, which I think would be a great move for him. They're a smaller club, so he should get plenty of playing time there. A close runner-up for me for man of the match was Victor Osimhen. He scored a tripleta in this game. He's now scored six goals in 121 minutes of action. Again, I know it was a friendly against a lower division club, but we're seeing a lot of good signs. First, he's a clinical finisher. He may be facing weaker opponents, but he's not missing the target. You can also see his competitive nature and his burning desire to score goals. He never seems satisfied. He always wants to score more, even if he has already scored three. And we're seeing his physical attributes. He made a play in the 25th minute where Diakite's pass for Arigoni was a bit weak and Osiman pounced on the ball with his long strides, which most players just are not physically capable of doing, and that led to a shot on target. Gattuso commented on Osiman after the match as well. He said, I think Victor is a quiet guy who has to work hard to play at a very high level. He has a great physicality and therefore cannot be satisfied. He is technical in his own way, but he has to be found on the piece. These goals do not count for anything. What is important is that he has already integrated into the group, joking and laughing with all the companions. Finally, we got to see quite a few Primavera players in action. Amato Cicciretti replaced Yunus and Mario Prezioso replaced Gaetano in the 66th minute. Gennaro Tutino replaced Politano in the 75th minute. Luca Palmiero replaced Deme in the 80th minute. Alessio Zerbin replaced Lozano and Francesco Mezzoni replaced Malqui in the 84th minute. And Alfredo Bifuco replaced Gulam and Valerio Labriola replaced Koulibaly in the 88th minute. One of the few benefits of losing so many players to the Nations League is that many of these young players got to spend the week training with the senior team and with Gattuso, which is invaluable experience for them. So that's the men's team. Our Napoli ladies played their third match of Serie A on Saturday. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to find the full match anywhere, so I'll have to rely on the highlights and the box score for this review. Sassuolo lined up in a 4-1-2-1-2 formation with Die de Lemmy in goal. Erika Santoro played right back, Davina Fillions played left back, and Maria Luisa Filangeri and Mana Mihashi played in the middle. The regista was Alice Parisi playing in behind Benedetta Brignoli and Camila Dubkova. Up top, Haley Bujeja played as a deep-lying striker and Valeria Pirone and Michela Cambiaghi played on the wings. Napoli lined up in a 4-4-2 with Emmeline Mengi in goal. Paola Di Marino played right back wearing the captain's armband. Elisabetta Oliviero played at left back and Emma Erico and Vivian Biel played in the middle. In the midfield, Jenny Yolman played on the right wing, Federica Cafaretta played on the left wing, and Vlada Kubasova and Alessandra Nanchoni played in the middle. Up top, Despoina Chatsi Nicolao and Anna Martinez played as the dual strikers. Sassuolo dominated the first half with Napoli defending wave after wave of attack, but it was Napoli that scored first from a set piece. Napoli won a free kick on the right side of the box. Nenchoni played an in-swinging cross with her left foot. Di Marino got their first and headed past an outstretched Lemmy, who got a hand on the ball but not enough to keep it out. Bujeja equalized just before the break on a beautiful solo effort. The 16-year-old retrieved the ball just inside the Napoli half and dribbled past five Napoli players before placing her left-footed shot inside the far post. Sassuolo took the lead in the 61st minute from the penalty spot. Napoli were a bit unfortunate here. Parisi's shot from the top of the box struck Oliviero straight in the hand. Her hand was up, but there was not much she could do to avoid it. Dubkova stepped up and converted the penalty. Only a few minutes later, the two goal scorers combined to give Sassuolo a 3-1 lead. This was another beautiful goal. Dubkova picked up Bujeja's run on the left wing. She dribbled inside the box, cut to her right foot, and picked the top corner off the bar and in. Napoli played a lot better in the second half, but were really unfortunate. First, Martinez played Chatsi Nicolau through, but her shot hit the upright and stayed out. Then, Livia Caparelli, who replaced Caferata at the half, played across to the far post, Hillman did really well to connect fully with a backheel volley, but she hit the post as well. 
Later, Caparelli played another cross into the box with Chatsi Nicolau headed into the crossbar. Hillman got to the rebound once again with a back heel, but it went straight up and bounced on the top of the bar. Lemmy also made a couple of big saves for Sassuolo, one on Martinez from point blank range, and then later on a volley by Sarah Houche from the top of the box. So this one finished 3 1 for Sassuolo. Napoli have lost all three of their matches to start the season, which I think is a bit harsh considering how they've played. Nevertheless, that puts us in 11th place out of 12. Fiorentina, Milan, and Juventus are at the top of the table in that order. All three are a perfect 3-0-0. So that will do for part 2. In part 3, we'll do our latest player profile on Alan. Alan Marquez Loreiro, more commonly known simply as Alan, was born on January 8, 1991 in Ramos, which is in the northern part of Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. After an unsuccessful spell with Flamengo at the age of 13, Alan followed in the footsteps of Brazilian legend Romario, playing futsal for Vasco da Gama. At the age of 15, he transitioned to Vasco's field team before being acquired by Madureira Esporte Clube. Madureira loaned Alan back to Vasco's youth team, there he developed a successful partnership with Philippe Coutinho both on and off the pitch. In an interview with ESPN Brazil, Alain recounted a Brazilian U-17 final where he and Coutinho defeated Santos 2-1 despite conceding a spectacular goal to a young star in the making named Neymar. The following season, Alain was promoted to Vasco's senior squad once again on loan from Madureira. In 2009, he helped Vasco win the Serie B title and earn a promotion to the top flight of Brazilian football. The Brazilian was subsequently loaned to Uruguayan squad Maldonado for a season, but he did not make a single appearance there and returned to Vasco in 2011. That summer, Alain was called up by the Brazilian U20 coach Ney Franco to play in the 2011 FIFA Under-20 World Cup. That squad was loaded with talent, even without Neymar. They had Danilo, Alexandro, Casemiro, William, Felipe Coutinho, and Oscar. With so much talent in the squad, Alain made only two appearances in the tournament, but they were both very meaningful. His first was in the quarterfinals against Spain, where Alain came off the bench to replace Oscar in extra time. The second was in the final against Portugal, where Alain replaced Gabriel Silva at the half with the game tied at 1. Brazil went on to win that match 3-2 to earn the country's fifth U-20 World Cup. Alain's success that year continued at Vasco, where he featured prominently at right-back in place of the injured starting right-back Fogner. Vasco finished runners-up in the Brazilian Serie A, only two points back of Corinthians after each side drew their final match of the season. Vasco also reached the semi-finals of the Copa Sudamericana, losing 3-1 on aggregate to eventual winners Universidad de Chile. Vasco also finished 6th in the Rio de Janeiro State Championship and most importantly, they won their first Copa do Brasil title. Those were the sounds after the final whistle. Vasco lost that match 3-2, but because they won the first leg 1-0 at home, the tie finished 3-3 and Vasco won on aggregate to become champions. In July 2012, at the age of 21, Alan was purchased by Udinese for 3 million euros. They didn't know it at the time, but Alan would become the latest gem uncovered by Udinese's South American scouts. The same scouting system found Juan Cuadrado, Luis Muriel and Christian Zapata in Colombia, Alexis Sanchez and David Pizarro in Chile, and German Dennis and Ricardo Pereira in Argentina. Alan joined the squad that was stacked with young talent, including a 20-year-old Davide Faraoni, an 18-year-old Piotr Zielinski, 21-year-old Roberto Pereira, and 21-year-old Luis Muriel. 
In his first season with Udinese, Alan made 36 appearances, 33 of which were starts, and in 32 of those matches, he played the full 90 minutes. That season, Udinese finished in 5th place in Serie A and qualified for the Europa League. Alan led the team with 4.3 tackles per game and 48.1 passes per game. The following season did not go as well with Udinese dropping to 13th in the table. Francesco Guidolin retired at the end of that season and was replaced by Andrea Stramaccioni, but Alain continued to improve. Though he did not score much, Alain became more involved in the attack under Stramaccioni. Contropiede con Alan. Alan, inseguito da Joao Pedro, lo tocca con i piedi, rimane in piedi. Alan! Alan, il pareggio dell'Udinese al decimo minuto della ripresa. È un pareggio meritato. Il gol dell'1-1, il primo in campionato per Alan. Veramente uno splendido momento di forma. That was Alan scoring a beautiful goal from well outside the box in a 2-2 draw against Cagliari. His involvement in the attack, though, did not affect his contribution on the defensive end of the pitch. That season, Alan won more tackles than any other player in Europe's top five leagues. One of Alan's standout performances that season was in match day 21 against Juventus. Alan lancia Tero, è fuori posizione Caseres. Tero controlla, è appena dentro l'area, libera il sinistro, respinge Buffon. Bruno Fernandes, ancora lui, e non inquadra la porta avversaria per la seconda volta. Numero di Anna, di Allan, tunnel addirittura a Pogba, ostruzione di Pogba, i giocatori dell'Udinese volevano il cartellino giallo anche per una manata sul volto di Allan. Ancora scatenato, Allan va via Pogba che riesce a intervenire sulla palla e opportunamente stavolta Gervasoni non ferma il gioco. Poi Pogba è sulla palla ma gliela porta via Allan che viene trattenuto e anche stavolta viene ammonito Pogba e si lamenta Stramazzoni. A Pogba mai eh, sembra dire all'arbitro e al quarto uomo poi contiene la sua protesta il tecnico dell'Udinese. Superlativo Allan, numero d'alta scuola, va via Bonucci ma subisce la trattenuta del diffidato Licksteiner che salterà per squalifica Juventus-Milan. Migliore in campo, Allan di Gran Lunga. Those were some of the plays Alain made that match. He completely shut down Paul Pogba to help Udinese to a 0-0 draw. He also nutmegged Pogba and was named man of the match. After the match, Stramaccioni said Alain was incredible. For me, he is one of the best central midfielders in Europe, second only maybe to Paul Pogba. Alain made 116 appearances in three seasons for Led Zabrette. In July of 2015, he was purchased by Napoli after rumors had surfaced five weeks prior. Napoli paid a reported 10 million euros for Alan and at the same time agreed to loan Duvan Zapata to Udinese for two years. Shortly after joining the club, Alan was interviewed by Carlo Alvino of Radio Kiss Kiss Napoli. In the interview, Alan spoke about his dream of playing for Napoli as a child, his promise to give 100%, which we know turned out to be true, at least until his final season, and the prospect of playing for Sadi. He also talked about his ability to steal the ball despite his size and the quality of Napoli's midfield, which included the likes of Valdifiori and Hamsik. What stood out to me in the interview was how humble and soft-spoken Alan was. His personality off the pitch didn't really match his personality on it. On the field, Alan continued to be the tough, tenacious ball winner that Napoli eagerly sought from Udinese. Some of his most memorable moments with the Azzurri were his tackles. He was the master of winning 50-50 balls and simply outmuscling his opponents. He was the master of winning possession without committing fouls. In large part, that was because of his positional awareness and ability to anticipate the play. Vorrebbe l'uno contro uno. La mette fuori per Neymar. E se lo sogna ancora stanotte, Allan che gliela porta via Mbappé. Va via anche Mbappé. Prende il calcio di punizione. E se lo sogna ancora stanotte, Allan che gliela porta via Mbappé. Super Allan. Super Allan. Super Allan. That was a tackle on Kylian Mbappe in last year's Champions League group stage. Another popular tackle is the one he made on Ciro Immobile last season in a 2-1 win over Lazio, which is more famous for Alain's celebration after the tackle, which was as if he had just scored a goal. Those are only two of the many, many amazing tackles Alain made during his time at Napoli. But Alain was and is so much more than just a ball winner. Alistair McKenzie summed it up nicely in a piece he wrote in 2015 for 442.com, when Alan was still with Udinese, where he said, Superb work rate and excellent tackling ability give Alan his reputation as an effective ball-winning midfielder. He has the ability to closely mark players of the highest caliber and come out on top, as shown in his duel with Pogba. 
On top of his excellent fitness and good turn of pace, he displays a footballing intelligence that sets him apart from more old-school midfield enforcers. Alan is excellent with the ball at his feet, combining superb dribbling ability with a creative eye for a pass. He has contributed 11 assists for Udinese so far, a figure that will only rise. He serves as the pivot through which the Zebrete construct their attacks and could be comfortably deployed deep or as a playmaker. Alan's strong play at Napoli drew the attention of many big clubs, and in January 2019, PSG offered Napoli 50 million euros for the midfielder. De Laurentiis insisted on 90 million euros, and the deal never happened. Alain's agent, Claudio Vagheggi, later said in an interview with Radio Punto Nuovo that when Napoli rejected an offer from such a large and important club such as PSG, it is natural that you lose your composure. You can appreciate why Alain wanted the move. PSG is a large club that fills many Brazilians including Marquinhos and Neymar, and at the time Thiago Silva and Dani Alves as well. From that point on, Alain's play began to decline. It was as if he had mentally checked out. Things only got worse from then on out. In November, Alain was at the center of the team mutiny after Napoli's Champions League clash with RB Salzburg. After an altercation with club vice president Eduardo De Laurentiis, the club issued a fine to Alain for half of that month's salary. Then on January 11, 2020, Napoli acquired Diego Deme from RB Leipzig. Deme made his first appearance a week later against Fiorentina, coming in off the bench to replace Alain himself. What we didn't know at the time was that Demme was not just replacing Alain in that match, he was also replacing him as the starting defensive midfielder. Alain was also a bit unfortunate. He missed the following match with muscle fatigue, Demme started in his place and played really well. Napoli won that match 2-1 against our biggest rivals and reigning champions Juventus. That match was the turning point of the season so Gattuso continued to play Demme. As it turned out, Alain would start only two more matches from that point to the end of the season. Also in January, rumors began to circulate that Alain got into an altercation with Gattuso, which Gattuso denied. Allora, certe volte, dopo ho sentito dire, circolava la voce che mi sono presa a cazzotti con, con, Alan. con Alan. Secondo voi io mi posso prendere a cazzotti? Un allenatore può prendersi a cazzotti con un giocatore? There are rumors going around that Alan and I had a fist fight. According to you guys, can a coach have a fist fight with a player? So I'm telling you, you have to be good. It's hard, it's very hard already as it is, but someone doesn't want to listen. Then I called Alan yesterday and he was embarrassed because today I had heard he refused, but it's been five games that he's been on anti-inflammatories. Good thing we did an MRI. Right now you have to be good if you want to help this team, if you want to help this city. If we have to push a little bit more or do something else, I don't know. Though Gattuso denied that he and the player had a fist fight, you can tell from that press conference that something wasn't right. Finally, in February, Alan was kicked out of training for a lack of effort. Alan didn't train the way I like. He has been walking around and it's only right that he stays at home for this game, Gattuso said referring to Napoli's upcoming match against Cagliari. It wasn't long before rumors surfaced that Alan could reunite with Carlo Ancelotti, who had since taken over as manager at Premier League club Everton. On Sunday, Alan's move to Everton became official. The 28 million euro transfer fee was nearly half of what PSG offered only 20 months prior, and a far cry from the 90 million euros De Laurentiis once demanded. He brings his quality, he, he, he brings uh, his art, he's a fantastic uh, <clears throat> player, in my opinion, with a lot of energy in midfield, with a lot of passion, and so I think he's, uh, the club did a fantastic effort. We have to say thanks also <clears throat> to Napoli that let uh, him uh, live uh, it will be a fantastic experience for him and it will be a fantastic player for Everton. That was Ancelotti talking about Alain joining Everton and reminding us of all the qualities we knew and loved from the Brazilian midfielder. As he leaves the club, Alain will not be remembered for his final season, which was a difficult one, not just for him but for the entire squad. Instead, he'll be remembered for everything he did in the previous four. He'll be remembered as the player who was mild-mannered and soft-spoken off the field, but terrorized the opposition on it. For Alain, it seems he will look past his final year as well. 
After the announcement, he shared the following on Instagram. Napoli is a special city. For me and my family, it's been a great five years. My children speak, think, and dream in Napolitan. I'm therefore grateful to President De Laurentiis who gave me the chance to wear a glorious shirt. In this club, I grew up as a professional and as a man, and I was able to work with coaches and professionals to whom I will always have to be grateful. I was blessed to find teammates who have been brothers in my path. Last season was a tough one, but the victory of the Coppa Italia was the best, the most right way to close the story I felt the protagonist of. A special thanks to the fans. It's been a privilege and a pride to be in these years their Napolitan Mastif. To them, my biggest hug, Alain. So that will do it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with your friends and give us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform. As always, if you have any questions or if you'd like me to cover anything in particular, you can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore Fischetti5, or you can find the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at ForzaNapoliPod. We'll talk to you again next week, but until then, I'm Joe Fischetti. Forza Napoli sempre! It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.